Amen. Please be seated. Let's open our Bibles. This morning as we begin our Advent series, we're going to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We've been doing the Gospel of Luke, and we had gotten up to chapter 6 and some events there. And interestingly enough, this text, chosen for Advent purposes, comes right at that same moment in Jesus' ministry where Jesus had been attacked for doing things on the Sabbath and people were uh, forming up against him, Matthew's account of those same events adds this section that we're looking at today. Just some context for our regulars. So we'll be looking at Matthew 12, beginning of verse 15. And as you're turning again, a welcome to those who are watching us online or those who are here with us present today. Uh, We invite everyone to come to Clifton Park and join us. God's word, Matthew 12, beginning in verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. May God bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. For these Sundays leading up to Christmas, we're going to talk about a couple of topics, hope, peace, love, and joy uh, uh, between the remainders of Advent Sundays and then on Christmas Sunday. Hope, peace, love, and joy. These tremendous, encouraging themes that we find throughout the Bible. And we start with hope because I think that's where we have to start. We live in a broken world, and the Bible knows that, and it explains that. But in the midst of this brokenness, the Bible points us to hope. As you might long for a better life and a better world, those longings can become rooted in biblical hope. Though the world seems adrift and the headlines, those headlines don't stop because it's Christmas season. In fact, we'll see some worse ones, who knows what, in days ahead. But regardless of how bad the world is, And how dark the day is, there is a biblical hope centered on Christ that goes back centuries, runs through the cross and the days of Jesus and his resurrection, and that hope is still ours today. So we're going to look at that. What gives you hope when you're stuck in a tough spot? I I thought of... uh, 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 what would be a tough spot, Uh, even worse than a desert island. You're on a raft, you don't even have an island. You're adrift at sea in your little raft. What would give you hope if you're adrift at sea in a little rubber life raft? Well, if you had provisions, 
if somebody airdropped to you a big box of what you need, food, water, sunscreen, newspaper, no, a book, a radio. If, if someone sent you appropriate provision, you would feel encouraged. The very fact that someone took notice of you would be encouraging. I was so deeply moved, as was the world, uh, 12 years ago in 2010, down in Chile, they had a, a coal mine, and there were 33 Chilean miners trapped underground because of a collapse. 33 men, you, you remember that story? Made global news. And the resources of Chile and other countries across South America, the United States was involved, the militaries of many countries was involved, even NASA was involved, seriously. These men, underground. They would be there for 69 days and be rescued, but the days would click by slowly. It was day 15, they heard noises. Day 16, a drill bit entered into the cavern where they were huddled, and they put a note on this drill bit so that when it was retracted up to the surface, the people would know, and again, they were writing in, in Spanish, Est sorry for my pronunciation, Estamos bien en el refugio los 33, or how do you say 33? And it meant we are well in the shelter, all 33 of us. That was day 17. It would be another 50 days, 52 days before they were out. But on that day, they got hope. And in the days that followed, they got some more supplies and encouragements. You see, in the Bible, in this broken world, God gives hope through what he tells us is ahead and through his provisions along the way all culminating in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. So at Christmas, we most clearly see God's generous gift and the ground for having hope. We don't see Jesus, but we know him by faith. We have a relationship with him. And if we recognize Jesus Christ as God's provision for us in this broken world, our hope is secure. Like those miners, we don't know what day we will be lifted above but we know it's the one who's working on our behalf will do it christ is god's provision and christ gives us hope so we're talking about christmas hope today but let's go back and, and just recap the the need for real hope and again i'll try to be quick you know sometimes my three points of a sermon don't all have the same length it's usually the first one that's the longest let's make the first one the shortest Will that, that surprise you? The need for real hope. We can just read the headlines, but let's look at the scriptures. First, our, the need for real hope uh, starts uh, all the way back in Genesis, the Garden of Eden. God made all those provisions for Adam and Eve, put them in the garden. They can eat everything except this one tree. We're good to go. You don't even need clothing because you're naked and not ashamed, and we're in a good relationship. The animals aren't going to bother you. Enjoy. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. But Adam and Eve, according to Genesis, fell into sin by disobeying God's law, disbelieving him. They acted in rebellion and fell into sin. But when God came to curse the serpent and to tell Adam and Eve about their punishment, he also spoke to them a word of hope. And before that word of hope, God did an action of hope. 
when he called them out of the bushes where they were hiding, and God spotted those fig leaves that were sorely inadequate, God took the life of an animal and covered them with skins. There was the shedding of blood that they might be provided for. I think that's the first picture of how God was going to solve this problem of sin. And then he spoke to them as he spoke to the woman. A seed of the woman, a descendant of woman, of Eve, will crush the serpent's head. The very first glimpses of the gospel appear in the book of Genesis. God had a plan. God was giving them hope. And it would be more than 69 days. It would be more than 69 years. It would be centuries. But God gave them a solid hope. Well, even though they had that hope and they kept looking at the sons, is it going to be Seth? Is it going to be Enoch? Is it going to be Noah? Who's going to be our deliverer? And along the way, as God's people struggled, they fell into greater sin. And God eventually decided to start with a people, most specifically his own. And he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. And he created the Jewish people and gave them his law. He redeemed them from slavery, brought them to Sinai. So he was giving them even more hope. I will bring you people to Sinai. I'm not sending the Messiah just yet, but I'm bringing to you, I'm going to help you further by giving you a revelation of what is best for you, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. And when you sin and break my laws, I will give you a means to have that covered through the sacrificial system. And all of these things will only further point to the one I will provide, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world, the greater than Moses who will be a prophet, the greater priest and king that I will send. But even the religion of the Jews, God's revealed way of living in the world and walking with his blessing wasn't strong enough to secure his people who wandered and flirted with idolatries as did the other nations. Since Matthew's quoting Isaiah 42, let's take a quick look at Isaiah 42 as we look at the religious side of the problem. We looked at the root side of the problem, sin and rebellion. The religious side of the problem we could call idolatry. And again, we'll, we'll talk about the quote of Isaiah 42 in detail in just a minute. But the context of the prophets. The prophets were sent to God's people not simply to tell them about the future. Boys and girls, do you remember that? A prophet doesn't just tell you about the future. He does that. But he also tells you what's wrong with the present. And Isaiah was God's prophet, and he was sent to God's people, as were the other prophets, to address their idolatries. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, he says, Behold my servant. God wants them to look to his servant and away from other things they were looking at. What is the context for this announcement, Behold my servant? Well, if you look in chapter 41, you get a quick taste of the context. Chapter 41, verse 24 The Lord is decrying the futility of idols. Behold, 
again, another thing he was pointing out, Isaiah 41, 24, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God is decrying the idol. And down in the last verse, Isaiah 41, verse 29, he decries the whole process of idolatry. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. Being religious and serving an idol of your own making or, as Isaiah often said to the Jews, doing religion just for your own purposes isn't enough. There was sin, that's the root of the problem, but there's the religious side of the problem. People think, oh, these fig leaves of religion will cover me. Or the nations with their idols, my carved idol will protect me. The Lord says, look, they can't do anything. And so he begins, Isaiah 42, behold, look instead to my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I like this guy. I like my servant, the savior I will put before you. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, not just to Israel and Judah but to the world. And then it talks about how he will do that. So the context of Isaiah, which we're going to go into in a little bit, reminds us there's a religious side of the problem that religious fig leaves don't solve our problem. God gives us hope, and what do we do? We manipulate that in very selfish reasons. Do people do that today? Ray Ortland says in his sermon on this text in Isaiah, says our root problem is not social or intellectual or even moral as we usually think of it. Our root problem in all of life is that we keep going to false gods for their false salvations more than we realize. That's what we do. He says our hearts complicate the profound simplicity of faith in God. There is only one salvation. It belongs to Christ alone, and we receive it on his terms, and no one has ever trusted him in vain. That's what Ray Ortland Jr. says. Isaiah was trying to tell that to the people of the day who were complicating the situation by misusing their religion. Again, we talked about if you were in a life raft in the ocean and someone dropped you a box of provisions, food, water, but if you misused them, You drink all your water immediately, you might get sick and die. If you misuse the provisions or trust in the provisions, but don't use those provisions, you see how even the gift of religion, revealed religion from Mount Sinai, uh, didn't do all that the people should have done. And then thirdly, as we look at the real problem, the real need, There is a rejection of God's solution. So we stopped in Genesis. We paused in in Isaiah here. This is where we get to the gospel, such as Luke and, and Matthew. We see the context for our text this morning is Jesus was aware of the opposition to him. What opposition? Well, the rulers didn't like what he was doing, especially on the Sabbath. Uh, they, they listened to some of his teaching, but when he actually started speaking with authority and healing people and allowing his disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath and not following all their uh, uh, particular traditions, many of the rulers rejected him. 
Many of the people were captivated and brought their friends to him for healing. But for a lot of people in Israel, Jesus didn't meet their expectations of a Messiah. You're not going to attack the Romans. You're not going to put them out militarily. Overall, in the Gospels, we, we see what John summed up. He came to his own and his own received him not. Okay, God's dealing with a broken world. He wants to show his grace and his mercy. He gives them a word of hope. He gives them a way of hope. That sacrificial system and the prophets and his word to guide them and direct them to his future provision. And then he sends his son. And even that's rejected. The world needs that hope. That's how desperate the situation is. And that's the situation we live in. Because you know what? Today, people are still rejecting God's solution. Jesus is is challenged by people's thinking today. If they want Jesus or they make use of him, it's often as a fig leaf on their terms, not his terms. Because he's not exactly what they want. So let's look at what the Bible describes about this servant and how God provides him and see if we can't understand God's provision and see more clearly grounds for hoping in Christ, hoping in his servant. So if we're looking at Matthew 12, we see this section. I like it when Bibles offset it so you can see the Old Testament quote. Um, We're going to look at these verses in Matthew because he's translated them from the Hebrew. He's probably used the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And even then, Matthew is most likely to have made his own translation of that. I was reading a commentary the other day and I couldn't figure out what Bible translation he was using. And I go, oh, that's right. Look at the beginning. And I saw where I had previously underlined. The author said, by the way, the translation I'm using is my own from the Hebrew and Greek. Okay. Uh, The Hebrew and Greek are God's inspired word. And translations, whether it's the Septuagint or the King James or the ESV or the NIV, those are translations of the originals. So Matthew gives us his translation. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But what does he tell us about God's servant? He tells us at least three things that become grounds for hope, that should give us more hope. First, this servant is the one who has God's blessing. This servant is the one who has been chosen and empowered by God. It's one thing to be put in a a job. If you're not given authority and power to do the job, you're not going to get it done. But when the Lord sets forth his servant, what does it say? Matthew 12, 18. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will pour my spirit upon him. So what are we told? Jesus is God's solution, his chosen one, the anointed one. In Old Testament, uh, the word Messiah means anointed one. In the New Testament, which speaks mostly in Koine Greek, Christos or Christ means the anointed one. Isaiah foretold that servant. 
In Isaiah 42, this is the first of four servant songs. As you go between this chapter and I think it's Isaiah 50 or so, you will see several little passages about my servant. And when you look at all of them, you see a a description of the Messiah, who he is and what he will do. And God did it in prophetic way hundreds of years before Jesus came. But this servant whom God has chosen, with whom God is pleased, and the spirit was going to be poured out to him, is Jesus in the fullness of time. What do we know? How does Jesus fulfill that? Well, when Jesus arrived and first appeared on the public scene, according to uh, John 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, a prophet of God, pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus eventually came to John to begin his public ministry by submitting to baptism, the baptism of John, which Jesus didn't need, but he said, let's do it anyways. On that day, the heavens opened, something like a dove descended on Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The fulfillment of Isaiah 42 and the servant passages in Jesus publicly in time and space. But we're at Christmas time. Let's not forget that even at the birth of Jesus, before he took up his public ministries, what did the angels say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, goodwill toward men with whom he is well pleased. For unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the anointed one the chosen one, the one who will be filled with the Spirit, the one who will come and bring salvation to the world. The New Testament confirms Jesus is God's chosen one, the one that's empowered. And you know what? The New Testament, as you read the Gospels and and, and what they tell us about the life and ministry of Jesus, it confirms what we heard announced It confirms the gift of the Holy Spirit because Jesus did great acts of power, power over nature, power over the human body, power over demonic spirits. Jesus could cast them out. He shows that he was filled with the Spirit of God. And in the preaching and teaching of Jesus, he proclaimed justice to the Gentiles. That Old Testament phrase we'll explain in just a minute. But I wanted to talk about the way in which this servant behaves. Verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew quoting Isaiah again for us. We see grounds for hope not only in the one that God has chosen, but in the way that chosen one accomplishes his mission. The way of grace. That's a ground for hope. Because you see, the Lord Jesus didn't come and say, here's a new law and you walk according to these precepts and don't mess up. That isn't the way of salvation. He comes full of grace and truth. And this is how he behaves. He will not quarrel or cry loud. He will not, uh, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That phrase, by the way, is, it sounds obscure to us. Saying, boy, nobody's going to listen to him. It simply means that 
great multitudes will not follow him. Jesus preached, follow me. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Yet at the death of Jesus and during his days in the tomb, there were about 120 believers in Jerusalem. There may have been a few more up in Galilee, but not many. The tens of thousands of people who had heard Jesus did not respond. That's what that refers to. But about his style, the way of his ministry, it's a way of grace. Because you see this other illustration, which is so picturesque. Matthew quotes it in 12, verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. What's that all about? A bruised reed. It's not talking about a clarinet reed. I think that's what they're called, or an oboe. It's talking about that long, tubular, grass-like plant. And in the ancient world, if you had any moisture around, there were millions of reeds. They were everywhere. Kind of like my front lawn is filled with acorns today, because this is where we live. We have all these acorns. I don't know what they're good for, but we have them. In the ancient world, they had reeds everywhere. They had reeds down in Egypt, and Moses was put in a little reed basket and floated around. They had reeds, and because of the hollowness, they were useful for many different things. But that tube of a reed, if it was bruised or bent, you you couldn't do what you needed to do with it. It was, quote-unquote, defective. And you would cast it aside. You had so many of them, just grab another one. Toss it aside, grab another one. You got so many of them, don't worry about it. Biblical scholar Leon Morris points out a perfect reed at best is fragile. So the imagery emphasizes weakness and helplessness. The same truth is brought out with reference to the wick. It took time and patience and the willingness to take pains to make anything useful out of a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. But that's the way of Jesus. He didn't come into the world looking for the perfect reeds. Oh, and look at that wick. Is that a good one? That doesn't even need trimming. Look how it burns. It's really a good wick. I, I sometimes feel like a smoldering wick. Sputtering and, and giving off smoke. It's, is that going to light or not? Or the broken reed? It describes us in our brokenness in need. And the one whom God sends, the one whom God empowers and sends into the world, takes time for us. I call this the way of grace. We see the the humility and gentleness of the Messiah, which people, when they saw Jesus, they're scratching their heads. Why do you care about this guy with the withered hand? It's the Sabbath. We got to do all this stuff first. Why, Why bother with him? The way of grace. If that's God's provision, one who comes with grace that will reach out to the broken and smoldering ones, there's grounds for hope. And then what is the aim of this servant? We've looked at he's chosen, the way of grace. The aim of this servant is justice. Let's use the word from the Bible. 
I think we could talk about salvation. That's where we're going. But let's start with this word that the Bible uses. In Isaiah 42, justice occurs three times in those four verses. Do you think it's an important term? Do you think Isaiah, talking to his people of old on behalf of God, who were dabbling with idolatry, whose religion was lip service, the concept of justice probably scared the pants off him. But what was the meaning of that word? Well, let's start with the meaning of it in the Hebrew. When it was used in Isaiah 42, those three times, it meant more than legal correctness. That's where we go because we've watched cop shows or CSI or what's the other one, law and, law and order. I don't even know all of them. So we think, when we think of justice, we think of the scales and the laws and the, and the justice system of our country. But the concept in the Bible is different and much more broad. This term is a very common term used several hundred times in the Old Testament. It means more than, than political legal correctness. For instance, it's used in Exodus 26, verse 30. I'll read it to you. 26, verse 30. The context was uh, God's plans to build the tabernacle, the portable temple, long before they got to Jerusalem. Exodus 26, verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. The Lord's speaking to Moses and saying, hey, this is how you're going to build the tabernacle according to the plan you saw on the mountain. Where's the word justice, Pastor? Well, it is in this phrase translated for us according to the plan. In other words, the word justice in that sentence means more or less blueprint for the way things should be according to God. You see... It normally means justice and judgment or law or regulation, but it can also mean prescription, specification, or in Exodus 26, it sounds like the word for blueprint. Ray Ortland says the blueprint God revealed from heaven. It's his design for the tabernacle. The word must speak of God's design for the world and its occupants. So when Isaiah uses that same word and says, my servant's going to preach justice and he's going to bring it about. He's saying, this servant will get everything back in accord with the blueprint. That's a rich biblical expression for salvation. Not simply the way we tend to think of it individually. I'm going to be forgiven my sins and I don't have to go to hell. I can go to heaven. But the blueprint of God is that you would live rightly in his presence every day while on earth and then spend eternity with him in the life to come. The blueprint means that the groaning of this created order will one day by Christ be resolved. It's a very full and rich term, this justice. It's the concept of salvation, resetting the world, not to a progressive agenda, but reclaiming the world for God's purposes and according to God's blueprint and design. I don't know what that means for particular nations or for economies, but I know when the Bible talks about justice, it means men and women living in right relationship to God through Jesus Christ. 
and loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So these three things I submit to you are grounds for hoping in Jesus. He's God's chosen one. He's one God's empowered one. And the way he comes and the way he exercises that power is with grace. Oh, sign me up. Christ didn't come looking for the most religious, the most dapperly dressed, the person with the biggest Bible or the longest resume. He came to sinners. The sick need a physician. Jesus had just explained. You know, the world doesn't get it. The Messiah came and he sat with sinners. And he did those things that didn't fit with all the rigorous practices and traditions of the Jewish leaders. But he was God's solution in his way of grace and his pursuit of biblical justice, of salvation, restoring the blueprint. This is good news. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he says, like a contractor with his hard head on and the blueprints before him, we're going to make a difference now. And it's starting with me. Are you aboard? There are grounds for hope. I trust you will see that and give yourself to this Jesus. Because I think third heading this morning is the call to hope in Christ. Matthew isn't citing this simply to say Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. He did. But to have people see that this is God's provision and to this we should respond. I like the word behold in verse 18. Behold comes often from the lips of angels. Behold comes from the lips of Jesus. And here it comes from his inspired apostle writing this gospel. Behold this servant. This Jesus is God's servant. So the first point Matthew makes for his readers and for us is this hope is fulfilled in prophecy. This fulfilled prophecy should only strengthen your hope in Christ. Isaiah 42 and all the servant songs are fulfilled in Jesus. Do you know about Matthew's gospel, what makes it a little different than Luke and John and Mark? Matthew seems to be the most Hebrew or Jewish of the gospels, the way it's structured and there are large patterns, uh, five sections of discourse that parallel the five books of the Torah and all these things. Who quotes the Old Testament the most? That's Matthew. And who quotes uh, a lot saying, thus it was fulfilled? That's Matthew. He's the one that explains the death of the babies in Bethlehem. He's the one who explains so many things. This is Matthew's longest citation from the Old Testament. He doesn't just say this was to fulfill what Isaiah wrote about his chosen servant mentioned to move on. Matthew seems to camp here. And Matthean scholars, scholars of Matthew, who've studied his particular theological view, say this is a very important paragraph. And the first item of importance is that conviction. God keeps his word. God's prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus. So anything else about Jesus that's prophesied should be trusted. And Jesus' words, his own, given to us, should be trusted. 
You know, I would just pause here and say Christmas, as you hear the story, as it's recited, and you hear how it fulfilled scripture, he was born in the city of Bethlehem, according to prophecy. This is a good time to weigh the evidence of the Bible. There is compelling, rational proof here that this gospel is worthy of your trust. Christianity is not a leap in the dark. Please don't say that's what faith is. Faith, to some people, might be a leap in the dark, but that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is trusting the God who has spoken. And we have these things written. So your hope in Christ is first standing on this fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy kept those early believers trusting and steadfast through great affliction. It was fulfilled prophecy that led the wise men from the east to follow the star. Wise men in the east most likely influenced by Daniel the prophet in times past. When they heard about this event and they knew the prophecies went to sea and found it to be so. But there's more to our hope than simply fulfilled prophecy. There's hope directly in Jesus. Matthew 12, 21 says, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And Gentiles here didn't exclude the Jews. It just meant the nations. That might even be the better translation to say the nations will hope, meaning everybody, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. To hope in the name. Isaiah didn't have the name of Jesus at hand. He talked about the servant. God the Father points us to the servant. And the scriptures say in his name men will hope. You need to understand that what that means. It's not an abracadabra, J-E-S-U-S, I'm good to go. I'm a little scared, so I'm going to say J-E-S-U-S. Do you ever wonder why it's so commonly used as a swear, as a curse, as an expletive? Because men are groping at the power they know that's behind that name. Oh, that we should not blaspheme the name. You see, the name represents the person. The name stands in the place of the whole person and their essential character. So to trust in his name, to hope in his name, which we're called to do, is more than just putting it on your lips. It's giving your life to that person. Jesus, the pleasing servant of God, is the savior of the world. He's alive today. And any church that knows the Bible at Christmas time will preach. Come to Jesus. Receive the babe in the manger who grew up, who lived, died, and rose from the dead, who reigns at the right hand of God the Father, who will return in this one. Put your hope and trust. He is alone, the hope and trust for salvation. Jesus himself said, no one comes to God the Father but by me. All the religions of the world fall into the the mocking of Isaiah 41. 
If you have not Jesus, you have no hope of life eternal. And this isn't just a Western thing or this isn't just a a Christian subculture thing. The Bible here says the Gentiles will hope. This is a reference to hope for the nations. This is wide open, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. It calls us to hope, regardless of our background, regardless of how bruised or smoldering we are. There is grace in coming to this one. Let me close with a few exhortations and applications. Uh, Just a couple minutes left. I have three just, again, pointing out what I think the message is, what God wants us to hear and take away today. First, Christmas displays the arrival of hope. Nothing wrong with the nativity scene and and dwelling on the birth narrative from Luke chapter 2 or from Matthew and all these places. But it should also be understood that this is a display of the arrival of hope. Behold my servant, see who Jesus is as God has sent him. Hear what the angels say when they sing about the Savior's birth. He's not just a cute baby. It's not just fulfilled prophecy. He is the one who will bring this about. And he will not stop until he brings justice to victory. Christmas, the incarnation, one of the most profound events In all human history. Is a display of hope. We we like the the Christmas lights. I hope you do. The, The light in the darkness. That's part of what we do in this season. Pretty soon we'll come to that day on the calendar. Which is the shortest day of the year. I'm thinking it's December 21st. And then on December 25th. The days start to get longer. We're going to celebrate the coming of the light of the world. Born in that manger. Christmas displays the arrival of hope. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Make sure to point people to hope. When you wish them a a, a Merry Christmas, and you're speaking of holiday plans, say something like this. Doesn't Christmas give you hope? Doesn't Jesus bring hope to a troubled world? Plant the thought, direct them to see what we see through the scripture at Christmas. Secondly, hear that the gospel is the message of hope. The message about Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. That Jesus came, lived, died Uh, was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures for the salvation of sinners. The gospel message about Jesus' life and work also gives hope. It's good news, not bad news. At many Christmas gatherings, people say, you don't talk politics and you don't talk religion. I'm okay with that. Just talk about good news. 
Talk about Jesus and the hope that you have. You don't have to hit anyone with your Bible. You just tell them that this is good news. Here's what the Bible says about it. Romans 5, which talks about uh, that we're saved by faith in Christ. When you get to Romans 5, verse 5, it talks about the hope that that gives us. And hope does not put us, Christians, to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The hope that you have in Christ, there's nothing shameful about it. It might make you uneasy to talk with that stubborn relative about it. But remember the way Christ came. That bruised reed or that smoldering wick. And use the gospel in the same way. Speak tenderly of the one who came with tenderness. We, we don't need to, to wrestle and, and get somebody to cry, uncle, yes, I'm a sinner, okay, I'm a sinner, and, and put our knee on their throat verbally. The gospel is a message of hope. Don't be ashamed. And further, Romans 8, I wanted to include this, 8, 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There is a joy that we experience now because of the gospel. Much of the gospel is future oriented. We haven't yet stood before the judgment throne to have Jesus rescue us from God's wrath. That day will come and Jesus will rescue us. He will claim us. We will escape punishment and be brought into the Father's presence with joy. But there's a dimension of hope in this good news. And as you share it with others, tell them of the hope that you have and how you're waiting patiently for its conclusion. And finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell everyone here today and everyone that might be listening, you personally must believe and hope in Jesus. You know, there's a wrong way to hope. And there's a right way. The right way is to believe in who Jesus is and give yourself to him. The wrong way is just to be amused by Jesus. The word hope that we're talking about was used in Luke 23, Jesus had been arrested and he was sent to Herod. And Luke 23 verse 8 says this. Upon seeing Jesus, Herod was very glad since for a long time he'd been wanting to see him because of what he had heard about him. And Herod was hoping to see some miraculous sign done by him. Giddy up. That's not the hope we're talking about. That's the misuse of God's provisions. I want to see you jump through some hoops. No, he came so that we'd be taken out of darkness into light, that we would be saved from death into life. We need to believe, and that's connected to our hope. You remember Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, a couple of disciples. It was Resurrection Sunday, but these uh, Cleopas and somebody else, we don't know his name, kicking the can down the road to a little town called Emmaus. They said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Same word for hope. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Boy, are they in for a surprise. I just love reading that story. They had hope, but their belief was wavering. 
they had hope and they were waiting, but they, they were struggling to put all those things together. So Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. To believe all that the prophets have spoken, like Isaiah 42. Was it not necessary, Jesus went on, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he did that. He explained who he is, that he is the ground for our hope, that they might believe in him and not kick the can, but have a taste of that victory. And they ran all the way back to Jerusalem to tell others. Our hearts were burning within us as Jesus explained these things. That's the belief and hope I want all of you to share. So you hear the message. You know it's about hope. There's reasonable grounds to believe Jesus is who he says he is. God's provision. But do you believe? Today would be a wonderful day to say, Lord, I believe. Period. I believe in Jesus. I am his. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for Matthew's understanding of Isaiah 42.